Well, good evening, everybody. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. My name's Michael Willis. I'm the director of the Middle East Centre here at St Anthony's College at the University of Oxford. And it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the sixth in our Friday seminar series of Michaelmas term. Now, those of you who've been following the series this term will know that we have been focusing on the theme of the environment in the Middle East this term for our series. And having looked in previous weeks at Jordan, uh, Tunisia, the Gulf and Iran, we will be turning to look at Iraq this evening. And our speaker to talk about Iraq is, is Dr. Michael Mason, who we're delighted to have with us. Dr. Mason is director of the Middle East Centre at the London School of Economics. We have a surfeit of directors of Middle East Centres on this uh, on this call tonight, as you called Michael. Called Michael as well. So yes, there must be something about Michael being director of Middle East Centres. Dr. Mason is also associate professor of the Department of Geography and Environment and associate of the Grantham Research Institute for Climate Change and the Environment. And he is the author of a, a number of books on environmental issues, both generally, uh, most recently, Transparency and Global Environmental Governance that came out in 2014. Also, the new accountability, environmental responsibility across borders came out in 2005. And also books specifically relating to the issue of the environment in the Middle East. Most recently, co-edited volume, Renewable Energy in the Middle East, which came out in 2009. And tonight, as I mentioned, we will be speaking about Iraq and we'll be speaking under the title of Failing Flows, the Politics of Water Management in Southern Iraq. Michael. Thank you very much, Michael. I shall go to screen share now. Welcome, everybody. Yeah, thank you very much, Michael, for, for you and colleagues for this, this kind invitation to come to the Middle East Centre at Oxford. It's, this is strange. I am actually here at the, at the Middle East Centre at Oxford, and I'd hoped when we originally planned this that this would be a, a meeting in person with, with academics and students and such like. Unfortunately, that has not happened, but I have actually made the journey here to allow me to meet colleagues at Oxford. So thanks very much for that invitation. I appreciate that. Let me say first, this is a piece of research which it was funded through the, the Conflict Research Programme Iraq, which was a UK government different funded programme between 2017, uh, finished this year, five-year programme, and the Conflict Research Programme Iraq work. There were other countries which were being researched under this programme at LSC. The Iraq programme was, was very ably directed by my colleague at LSC, Professor Toby Dodge who I give thanks to for guidance on issues around Iraq. Now, I'm, I'm an environmental geographer. I look at water management, water infrastructure, environmental sort of uh, resources and politics. And this talk is basically about a, it's a policy brief, which is one of the outputs of the, the conflict research program Iraq, looking at water management in southern Iraq, particularly looking at Basra city, Basna governorate, this research, there was a team of us involved, so I'm just give credit to my colleagues on the team, my Iraq researcher, uh, Azar Arubayi, and my LSE-based researcher, Zainab Mehdi, were both involved in this project. There is a report, policy report, which came out for this project. I can show you the screen, the hard copy here, which we have available, and there'll be an e-link if anybody's interested, if they want to see the e-version of this report, which we can make available to you via this, this series, and also it's available on the LSE Middle East Centre website. Now, the policy brief is quite focused. We have partly had to steer here from the UK government interested in us doing a policy brief. There's a separate academic paper written up, which is currently under second review, 
giving a more historical context of the sort of water management politics in southern Iraq in the past decade or so. But for this particular project, we had a, as the kind of the aim to look at the water situation since 2018, very specific kind of, and I'll, I'll give the reason for that shortly, why 2018 after 2018. But the report does go briefly into the, the sort of longer historical context in terms of a conflict-affected water management sector going back to the Iran-Iraq war and then obviously a conflict, a more recent conflict in terms of the UK-US coalition, invasion, occupation and civil conflict, also an ISIL-related violence in Iraq. The policy, if you like, background for this is sort of post-occupation. The Coalition Provisional Authority, CPA kind of template for the rehabilitation of infrastructure in Iraq. And the focus on this policy brief is on the water sector. Why do we pick 2018 as a starting point? Because there were big protests that took place in Basra in 2018 over a major water pollution incident in which almost 120,000 people were hospitalized. These protests broke out onto the streets. There were also grievances around other public services, electricity, and general sort of disaffection with the sort of city and the provincial government. And we were, in, for this policy brief, we were interested in what's gone wrong. Why is the water sector not functioning? And can we sort of specify what the issues are? Now, the tap water in Basra has been undrinkable basically since the 1990s. Most households buy water from private vendors. This is a, a picture of one in, in November 2020. And although the tap water delivered by the, by the authorities is supposed to be potable and clean, it's never used for drinking. It's bored even to use it for sort of washing up. And, you know, some people in the city say, at best, it's used to wash cars. Now, one of the key starting points with this work is that the large proportion of the population, the government is not actually connected to the public water network. As part of the data collection for this study, we were uh, gathering statistics and data from the Basel Water Directorate, to which uh, we're thankful. It wasn't easy because the records are quite fragmented and most of them are not digitalized. So this involved chasing up sort of paper copies of what's going on in terms of water infrastructure, water management. So at least the aim for this policy brief, we're looking at the problems in the water supply and treatment infrastructure in, in Basel Governorate. The methodology involved interviews with you know, what I would call insiders, water engineers, uh, water managers, public officials, but also people in civil society who, who talk about water management as an issue in Basra, including civil society uh, activists from religious leaders, also gathered data from, from Basra Water Directorate now, as I said, this is a policy brief I'm talking to. The, the academic paper, uh, this is a separate academic paper, works up some theoretical ideas to account for what's been happening with the water management kind of failing in, in Basra Governor, which I'm quite happy to kind of go to in questions or discussion, but I won't mention that or go into that theory more in this presentation. But basically, the key kind of theoretical frameworks, if you're interested, are political ecology. And the idea of, of Basra sort of governance as a political marketplace, inspired here by my, my colleague Toby Dodge's application of this concept to Iraq and Alex Deval for uh, applied religion to Africa, which is the idea of understanding the governance in, in Iraq, in southern Iraq, specifically as a kind of transactional politics, rent seeking politics, in which political loyalty and support is bought. 
Okay, and so in terms of the theoretical work, it's working out how that political marketplace feeds into water management. Now, this is a map in the in the report. So you, if you if you go to the report, you can look at this in more detail. One of the things that struck us looking at this situation, and there's there's lots of great literature on the on the so-called water crisis in Basra. And what we wanted to do with this study is try and be a little bit more granular, if you like, a little bit more almost forensic and, and find out what's actually happening in terms of water flows and water treatment. The basic problem is that Basra City, and again, the focus here is on Basra City, it's clearly dependent on something called the Bada Canal. This is the dash line on the map. The Bada Canal is a sort of 240 kilometer long uh, canal, which brings water from the Gaurav Canal, taking water from the Tigris to Basra. Now, this Bada Canal was built in the 1990s. It's a long canal. And the reason Basra is dependent on the Bada Canal is you'd say, well, surely Basra is right next to the Shatalawab. The Shatalawab being the, the confluence of the Tigris and Euphrates. The Shatalawab is so polluted by chemicals, by heavy metals, by all sorts of things, by agricultural sort of uh, uh, flows, that it's unusable, pretty much unusable in terms of water treatment. So the whole idea with the Bada Canal is to provide a fresh water supply for Basra City. This means Basra City is very much dependent on this particular canal. Now, one of the things we can talk about perhaps in discussion, I won't go into great detail here, is the, the, the Chateau Arab has become more and more saline because of flow reduction since the 1970s attributed to upstream dam construction on both particularly the, the, the Euphrates and more recently the Tigris in Turkey, Turkey in particular, also Syria and also Iran particularly Iran recently with some of the two tributaries which feed into the Shatal Arab. This flow reduction is increasing the seasonal summer incursion of seawater from the Persian Gulf. This is now reaching all the way up to Basra, okay? So it's sort of over 100 kilometers, yeah? This salinity is increasing the unusability of the water which is extracted from the Shatal Arab because some water is still extracted from the Shatal Arab for water treatment for use in Basra. So what happens, one of the things we found out, talking to people about what happens, is that there's a, a rationing system, allocation system, where the Chatalawa water is mixed with Bada Canal water. And one of the things to explain is, is what happened with the 2018 water crisis. And we looked at the, the water data, water quality indicators, and, and they all shoot up in summer 2018 in terms of very, very poor quality, even after treatment, is the, the Bada Canal flows were far less. I'll say shortly why that was so. And reduced flows of the Bada Canal freshwater forced the authorities to extract water from the Chatalawa. It made the water much, much more difficult to treat. And some of the key problems in 2018 were the, were the treatment systems were overwhelmed by the, by the heavily saline polluted water, even when it was mixed with the water from the Bada Canal. So the, the, at least in, for the 2018 crisis, we can see that the, the trigger of the collapse of water quality is related to a, a marked reduction in flows from the Bada Canal. If I go back, if I can do that, it's a little bit slow, the transition. One of the reasons being is the Bada Canal was built in the 1990s on the UN sanctions regime. At the time, the Iraqi government did not have the resources 
to build it in a way where it would be more efficient. So for example, one thing that strikes you, this is the Bader Canal before it, it reaches Basra City. The Bader Canal is open. So you lose a great deal of water from evaporation. The Bader Canal at this point, you see, see pretty solid concrete lining. This concrete lining is not repeated for the whole length of the canal. So some parts of the Bader Canal are prone to collapse. The Americans in, in 2003 spent some quite significant money trying to rehabilitate the Bader Canal but didn't solve this, this sort of long-term problems with the basic infrastructure not being very sound. Another big issue with the Bader Canal, you don't see with this picture, is often clogged up with hornwort, with aquatic plants, which is a big problem for the water treatment plants in Basel. They spend a lot of time taking out this, uh, this aquatic plant, which some people attribute actually, interestingly, to increased temperatures, increased water temperatures as a result of climatic change. So going back to the water treatment situation in Basra. Basra is very dependent on a quite small scale water treatment technology called compact water treatment units, CWTUs, we use the acronym. These are kind of what we might call the water infrastructure workhorse or workhorses in Basra, because these supply over 80% of treatment capacity across the government, over 300 units, and 92% of treatment in Basra city itself, about 178 units. Um, these have tended to be favoured by both the Iraqi state, including the, the provincial uh, government, and international donors as a good, resilient, quote, temporary technology. Why? Because they're modular, they're mobile, they're reliable. You can move individual units around. You can have a water treatment plant, which might have multiple units. You can take one unit out and the rest continue working. Okay, so this has been the preferred kind of water, I would say preferred, I would say actually uh, enforced water treatment infrastructure technology for Basra in the past couple of decades. However, to work, these uh, compact water treatment units need the regular water flow from the Bader Canal. And one of the things with irregular flows from the Bader Canal is they're not getting the water in sufficient quality or quantity rather to produce reliable potable water for Basra residents. Now in the study, we focused on two particular plants we looked at two treatment plants in Basra, and the key one is, is this one, which is the R0, or Alabas water treatment plant, because this, this is a gateway. This receives all the water from the Bada Canal. This treats some of the water itself, and then distributes that water to residents in Basra City, but then channels other, the rest of the water, the raw water, it has a preliminary filtration, but the rest of the raw water, as it's called, is sent to nine water treatment plants in Basra. Now, the issue here is if the Bader Canal is failing in terms of, of water flows, you have a knock-on cascading failure throughout the whole system. This is what happened in summer 2018. The R0 or Alabas water uh, treatment plant also has its own problems. And these are reported in the interviews with engineers and managers in terms of heavily corroded main water collection basins, problems from, as I mentioned, from aquatic plant accumulation. Also, the storage basins for the, uh, for the R0 plant, if the Bader Canal fails, the storage basins only give you up to five days capacity to keep the water running into water treatment use in Basra. So there's, there's an issue here, there has been an issue in terms of if the system suffers a shock, remember we're talking about is the system resilient, then there's only five days capacity, only five days storage capacity. This is a big issue. This is one of the reasons for the failure, again, in summer 2018. Another reason 
is that there is uh, extensive illegal what's called water tapping, including from the R0 plant. Different estimates of this estimate from the UN agencies is about 40% of the water. I've seen high estimates distributed by this plant is lost due to leakages, inefficient water sort of channels and illegal connections. Illegal connections are extensive use for domestic use, for commercial use and so forth. So, so there's an issue, not only water, enough water to reach the uh, R0 plant, if enough water reaches the R0 plant, is enough water then getting through to the water treatment plants supplied from the R0 plant? Just to go back quickly, the other water treatment plant we looked at, we thought we'd look at one of the water treatment plants which was being supplied by R0 and the, comp the, the, the compact water treatment units you can see in this photograph are of a water treatment plant called Al Zubair, which is about 10 kilometers southwest of Basra city. And we were interested in looking at this particular water treatment plant. When we were doing the research, all of the compact water treatment units were out of use. Okay, the, the Iraqi government had, had promised in the start of 2020 some major investment to rehabilitate them. They were all out of use. That meant this plant was not actually treating water. It was doing some very basic sort of light chlorination to the water and then pumping the water on. This water was not usable for residents. This caused a big issue in Al-Zubair, forcing residents even more to go to, to private water alternative supply sources. So we, we see major failings in terms of water treatment capacity. Going back to the key R0 plant, so we picked these two water treatment plants in terms of, um, we wanted to do more, but there were, there were constraints in this research as many would understand uh, in terms of COVID, the pandemic in, the, in uh, last year or so, and also the security situation in Basra. The research or the interviews from the, from the managers and engineers states that compact water treatment units should be good for at least 20 years. The engineers say that at least in, in terms of these two plants, they require heavy maintenance after five years. Okay, so something's going wrong in terms of the underinvestment in their basic maintenance. We ask why. They say it is not. One of the things sometimes the grey literature suggests is that there are chemical shortages or perhaps energy shortages. The, the key chemicals relied on here are, are chlorine and aluminium sulfate, which is used to, to sort of what's called flocculation to bring particles together in a way which makes it easier to extract them from the water, pollutants. Engineers said, no, this is not the issue. The issue is spare parts and it's bureaucratic, okay, particularly about water pumps. There was a big issue with water pump failure in 2018 when the uh, technology was overwhelmed by the mixing of Albada raw water with water from the Chateau because of salinity. The salinity overwhelmed the kind of water treatment capacity. Um, there's been lots of political disputes over the, you know, who's responsible for this. Yeah, different, different parties blame each other in terms of the national government, provincial government, and so forth. If, if I can discuss that more if necessary in a discussion. But the key thing here, at least we were told, was, was spare parts. Something as simple as spare parts. This is a picture of the servicing of water pumps at the R0 treatment plant in November 2020. So I'll just bring it to a close. And I, I recognize this is quite broad brush. And so I'm sure there are areas, if people want to follow up on particular points, then we, I'm happy to, to discuss those in questions. Now, in terms of what's going on, 
one of the thing, and we do mention this in the policy brief actually, and this is not a surprise for anybody who knows anything about Iraq or southern Iraq, is the conspicuous lack of state authority in terms of hydropolitical decision-making, decision-making over water management. There's widespread illegal water extraction. We were told that this is, some, this is something the government is dealing with, but there seemed to be little evidence of, of reducing, or there is some prosecutions going on, but at least this widespread illegal water extraction is continuing. One of the things then we saw, and this goes back, I mentioned the, the term political marketplace earlier, about a, a political system in which there's an expectation of rent seeking. In Basra governorate, there's all sorts of both uh, legal, uh, semi-legal, if you like, and criminal rent seeking, particularly around, around the port in our four and around uh, hydrocarbon contracts. But here, we were quite interested to find that this, this rent seeking behavior, which is often to do with tribal militia threats against contractors or against water treatment plants, uh, if particularly there's international funding available, then there's uh, some sort of gap, some payment made or some guarantee that people will be employed, uh, certain groups will be employed by the contractor. This seemed to be a significant problem in weakening significantly water management capacity in Basra, Basra Governor and the city. This is part of, as any of, any of you know, the, the situation in Basra, the routine violence of politics in Basra and the key role of militias here in deciding what goes on. So we have, a, we have a loss of legitimacy also for the state. The state's supposed to be the one that, you know, this is from a, a quote translated from an interview. The state's supposed to be the take responsibility for delivering safe drinking water. This is the least the state can give, which is a citizen's right. Just as the state asked me to respect the law, I demand that the state gives me drinking water. And we have a, we have a water network vulnerability in these situations of political dysfunctionality, which is becoming more vulnerable because of external physical shocks. And here we're looking at the reduction in water flow as a result of upstream dams, which I mentioned earlier, and issues around the, the sort of irregularity of water flow because of the lack of maintenance of the Bader Canal. And in the context also, uh, some are saying of recent droughts and climate change. So we have this added stress, this added kind of physical environmental stress. Now, one of the things that international donors and also the Iraqi government have hoped that there'd be some kind of single shot, high tech mega infrastructure solution to the water management crisis in Basra. This has been, if, if you go into the policy brief, we talk about some of these mega projects, including uh, uh, the, the Japanese JICA, Japanese Development Agency, a project to, to upgrade infrastructure, water infrastructure in Basra, to more recent suggestions to build a massive desalination plant at Al-4, near the port, which is, again, this, the idea of a single-shot solution. All these single-shot solutions have all been delayed for all sorts of reasons, including allegations of contractual malpractices. So one of the, one of the recommendations in the report is no, to put it simply, to single-shot solutions. Diversify primary sources of public water and the ways that you can do this. So make sure, in, in, in fact, the, uh, one of the things that you can do which is relatively straightforward, and the, and the Iraqi government did commit to this uh, last year, is to cover the Bada Canal, to cover the canal, give it a decent sort of lining, which would reduce significant evaporation. That single project, admittedly expensive given the length of the Bada Canal, if it at least covers certain sections of it, would be, for me anyway, the most efficient single action you can do in terms of at least ensuring that that supply source 
is more efficient. However, it might also be, it's likely also that desalination will also be necessary. So in our report, we talk about creating multiple sources for water to make the system more resilient. You have to improve the operational performance of water distribution networks. These are going back, constructed in the 1970s, 1980s, at least for Basra City. They're falling apart. The engineers say this, the managers say this. And one of the unfortunate things that seemed to be with, with donors in the past, international donors tended to favor big mega infrastructure projects and not thought about the more routine, daily, sort of mundane, if you like, water distribution networks. There are examples from across the region, which could also be relevant here. For example, increased use of wastewater recycling, particularly in terms of the agricultural sector, very little wastewater recycling in Basra. And lastly, we say in terms of the report, I think, and this is something international donors could perhaps, you know, if, if they do want to spend vast amounts, sums of money in Basra, perhaps insist on is, is a need, I think, or at least we recommend, of an independent review, a, a dispassionate, impartial, objective review of water governance in Basra. Because many people are talking about the, the sort of crisis or the failures of water governance in Basra. But I think there needs to be an independent sort of review which consults with the stakeholders on the ground, as it were, with the water users and the, those actually water and the water treatment plants. I should say the, the water engineers or the water managers, at least for me, are not the ones who are failing in this situation. They, they, they're incredibly kind of conscientious. And usually these plants are understaffed. So they're working very, very hard under very, very difficult conditions to make sure this technology keeps running. So there's an important thing here, I think, to, to take seriously if you want to understand why a water infrastructure management system is not failing, I think one of the lessons in this report, which is for me is quite a common sense thing, is talk to the water engineers. Talk to the water engineers, not the politicians. The water engineers are the ones who know what's going on in terms of everyday water management and treatment. I think my time is up. I might have gone over there. Apologies, Michael. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you very much, Michael. So I might, I might have slipped a slide there, the, the slide on, on mega infrastructure solutions. Oh, right. Would you like to go back and say something about that, Michael? We have time. No problem. Yes, very quickly. I mentioned this at the end. I don't know. I, I, I somehow skipped this. Is this idea, for both from the Iraqi government and from donors, that there can be a, a, a silver bullet as the answer to the, to the water management deficit in Basel Governorate and the, the Japanese-funded Great Basel Water Project which involves, actually does involve water infrastructure, distribution network, rehabilitation and investment, uh, should have finished by now. It still hasn't finished. And there was a very good report by Human Rights Watch a year before last, claiming that there were serious con contractual malpractices and corruption holding this project up. And there I've mentioned the, the 1 million cubic meter a day out for desalination plant, which has now gone out as a tender to a company, European company, in terms of the, the contract management. And this is something which should be finished in, I think, by 2024, but it's also dragging on in terms of arguments, political arguments about who should get the contract. And everything in Basra, I think this is somewhere else where whatever the, the, the good intentions of outside contractors and international donors, the failure to engage or understand the political marketplace of Basra is something that means that these donor projects often don't sort of are unfulfilled. And lastly, I mentioned, just mentioned this, the upgrading of the, of the canal would for me be the single uh, most effective infrastructure upgrading kind of immediate solution because it would double the capacity. 
of the Abada Canal just by covering it and upgrading parts of the, the embankment. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael. Thank you very much for a, a re remarkably comprehensive, if rather sobering account of, of, of what's happening in Basra on that. And it's particularly good. We hear a lot of discussion about there being problems, but we really get the sort of in-depth explanation of what is happening technically at the level and what the technical issues are and why precisely these problems are happening. We hear about them. To have somebody have gone in and, as you say, talked to the water engineers to find out exactly what has happened. So thank you very much for, for giving that great survey of, what, of the situation in Basra. We're going to move now to the question and answer session, the opportunity you have to pose questions and put questions to, to Michael. We can do this with the question and answer function. If you look on Zoom, and on along the bottom of your screen, you'll see Q&A. Now, if you press that, there's a box you can write your question into, and then that will give us an opportunity. And I'll try and select as many of those as possible as we have time for, and put them to Michael. And you're um, welcome to put your name in. If you prefer to be anonymous, that's absolutely fine. You can alter that to anonymous, and we'll try and get through uh, as many of the questions as we can. I'd like to start with a question of myself, Michael. You, you sort of, one you in, invited yourself looking at the politics of it. I think you made the very, very valid point that sometimes the politics gets focused on too much, but people go and talk to the politicians. But as you said, we may need to go and talk to water engineers. But could you say a little bit more about the politics, the local politics? You mentioned about the political parties, you mentioned about the, the militias, and particularly something on how the local political, or even um, the local political scene and the role of political parties has affected the issue, and, and whether it's obviously clearly it's made it worse, but in what sort of ways? Yeah, sure. The political system locally, it mirrors to some extent the, the political system nationally, which other scholars on, on the Iraqi political system, I'm not a, a scholar on, on the Iraqi political system, have talked about the sort of Muhassasa sort of allocation system, whereby particular parties, particular constituencies are, at least informally, guaranteed sort of access to particular government offices, but also as part of this, also particular government funding, maybe expectation of certain contractual uh, favoritism. Now, that was interesting because I think the first election, 2005, after the new constitution, had the uh, Islamic Virtue Party as the key, as, as the lead party. Baz was dominated by, by a series of Shia parties. And since 2009, what you've had is almost a, what we can call a local alliance of these parties, where they sort of come together. They seem to realize not, each of them by themselves cannot dominate the local political scene. There's a kind of what's called actually in some of the, um, the sort of rent-seeking literature, I'm thinking of here people like Douglas North who talks about what he calls uh, limited access orders and how particular governing structures in often conflict-affected situations where natural resources are, are a key rental stream, as they are in Iraq through, through hydrocarbons, of course. You have a kind of what he calls North, a dominant coalition. The dominant coalition in Basra is dominated by these, these local uh, Shia parties. And so they, they, they have this, this kind of, uh, they've sewn up, if you like, the political scene, which has created this great gap between those who are represented narrowly by political parties, and these political parties all have militias, and the rest of the population. And when we had the 2018 protests in Basra, the water, the water situation, was some, which was something very much triggered this, 
local protesters were perceived that these uh, these these Shia party militias are very much Iran, Iranian sort of uh, directed and sometimes funded, and so they were they were burning headquarters. I think they, they burned the, the sort of the, the head of the uh, sort of the Iranian consulate in in Basra, and there's, there's, so you had these local political parties which are kind of sewed up the, the sort of the governance locally. And what this means is that the, the governor, Assad Aladani, is seen as a kind of compromised candidate. He's somebody who kind of brokers between these different groups. But what it means is I think you have, a, this, is, this, is more, this is my opinion, this is not in the, uh, the policy brief, you have a quite an ossified local political system, which I think is based on a system of quite explicit rent-seeking and patronage, which freezes out a large, I would argue, the majority of the population. And this causes issues. And if you go into the into why some of the major water management infrastructure projects are stalled, and we, we you know, we asked this at the local level, and, and this was said that you know that this is stalled because this, this militia, not just militias, not just party militias, also tribal militias. The tribal militia has said if you don't give us a certain amount of money, then we'll attack your water treatment plant, for example. Yeah. So this this whole political marketplace penetrates the system. However, saying that, and of course, it's, it's become um, 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 tragically bloody since 2018, 2019, 2020. We have, I have colleagues at Middle East Centre funded through this conflict research program who've done really, really fantastic work looking in great detail at the protests since 2018. For example, uh, Ben Robin de Cruz, who's at Aarhus University in Denmark now, done a great paper in looking at what's happening with the, with the political protests and particularly some of the political assassinations since 2020. There's a whole swathe of civil society activists have been assassinated by militias, militia groups, and certain militia groups have been named as responsible for these assassinations. So it's a very bloody um, situation. In the paper, I don't think it's in the report, uh, but in the paper I, I quote, there's a, a former Basra police chief saying Baz was run by militias. And that's from the police chief. So it's, it's a very, in one way, this, this is, sorry, this is a long answer, Michael. In one way, we have to be careful with characterizing this as dysfunctional. It is dysfunctional in the sense that anybody from outside can say this, this is madness, this is violent, you know, but it's not anarchic. There's an organized political kind of system there. It might be a, what's been called a, a kleptocracy, it might be a particular kind of system which, you know, we, we have absolutely no time for, of course, yeah, but it, is, it enables itself to reproduce. And that's a, I think that's a key lesson. How can you kind of penetrate or, or at least think about ways in which this political system can at least open up to discussion, to civil society groups, where perhaps water management is somebody, nobody likes having lousy water, so maybe water management is something where that you can perhaps even depoliticize it in terms of, you know, and, and even, even the local alliance of Shia parties know if you're not delivering decent water to the population, they're going to be out on the streets. So there, there's a self-interest there for them as well. Thank you, Michael. We can now move to questions coming in from those of you attending. And thank you very much for your questions and do please keep them coming. Our first question comes from Lucy Banish. And Lucy, uh, thanks you very much, Michael, for the insightful talk. And Lucy's question is, what are feasible financing options for the recommended improvements? I think the ones you mentioned at the end of your talk. Are, are, 
how can these things get financed given the fact that, that obviously is clearly an issue yeah there were several things here. i think i would say them thank you for your question lucy is that a continuous source of dispute between the provincial uh, government and the national government is is share of of hydrocarbon rents and there have been disputes between Aladani, the governor, and the national government saying, well, actually, Basel government should get a fairer share of the hydrocarbon rents, given that you have the concentration of oil fields in the south. So one of the things there is, at least now, there was an issue a year or so ago when oil prices were lower. But as oil prices have gone up again, there's no shortage of Iraqi government money or petrol dollars. Yeah, There's no shortage of money in terms of saying, well, these projects cannot happen. This is why last year it was announced that the Badr canal would be finally upgraded in a way that become more efficient but what happened is i think because of the political system is at least in terms of iraqi government money the the, the plan that we looked at the al Zubair water treatment plant we were looking at that because the r0 plant had some international donor money and the al Zubair plant had some iraqi government money which had been promised but didn't turn up we couldn't even find out why it didn't turn up the money. Yeah, why the money did not turn up. So there's an issue around gov government financing. Locally, because the money tends to come down through the national ministries, including Basel Water Directorate, the perception locally is this is incredibly bureaucratic. In fact, the system is made deliberately bureaucratic that if you don't spend, your, you have to fill out loads and loads and loads and loads of forms. And if you don't manage to do that properly and don't spend your money, the national government grabs the budget back. So there's a very simple kind of um, solution here in terms of basic bureaucratic governance, in terms of allocation of national government money, okay? In this case, with the Basel Water Directorate. So the issue is not lack of money. And on top of that, you've got international donors willing to come in. I'm, mind you, I'm saying that the big desalination plant in our full desalination plant is not going to be funded by donors. The, the Iraqi government is going to fund this. You know, um, so, so there are millions or billions of dollars that can be used here. But international donors do come in. And the plant that we looked at, which had no functioning compact water treatment units last year, the, the Al-Zubair plant, um, UNICEF came in at the last minute because the manager was, was screaming, please help us, somebody. The government is not giving us any money. And so th th you have this kind of reactive kind of, of funding from international donor agencies, humanitarian work, and, you know, this is happening at other water treatment plants. So I think, in, for, at least in terms of international donors, humanitarian funding is, is often there before things get too grim. But there could be perhaps a more strategic financing option available, which, and this is, I, I finished off saying this, where you can say, well, the Japanese government are given like hundreds of millions to, to upgrade all the water infrastructure for Basel. But then it got snarled up by the political system. So you must have some kind of donor payment system, which is somehow rendered immune from the national and the local political marketplace. And I think donors probably have more power here than they think. You know, sometimes a little bit too, they claim they have all sorts of wonderful auditing and transparency, anti-corruption devices, but this is not working. It hasn't worked, at least in the past. So I think this is not rocket science to set up an international donor payment system which can render the payment for water infrastructure upgrading and investment at least more resistant to the local political marketplace. I'm not going to claim to, to tell you now how to do that, you know, but I, th I think much more effort could at least be expended in that direction.
Thank you, Michael. Next question comes from a colleague here in Oxford, Hussam Hussein, and he says hi. Hussam actually gave us uh, another of our lectures in our series, I think in week two, and gave a, a, an equally wonderful and equally sobering discussion and account of what's happening in Jordan. And Hussam asks, could you please elaborate more on the challenges of wastewater recycling? You referred to it very briefly, and I suppose also on the degrees of normative acceptability among the population of treated wastewater for different uses, because I know Hussam touched on this in his own presentation in the case of Jordan. Yeah, great question, Hussam. Thank you. And it's good to see you. Well, I've not seen you, so I can't say good to see you, but good to, good to hear you and get, and get your question. Now, th this is a um, caveat rather than a cop-out. We didn't look at wastewater treatment as a, as a key kind of research sort of aim of this project, you know, in terms of at least, at least not a sewage treatment. The Basra is reliant on an old single massive kind of uh, sewage plant, which also has its own issues in terms of upgrading. And that impacts on the water treatment because it's discharging levels of pollutants into the Chateau Larab, which increasing the, the sort of toxicity of water in the Chateau Larab. So there's, there's, there's a separate issue in terms of the sewage network and the sewage treatment plant, which mirror what I said. I can't go into that in, into detail. We didn't look in, into that in detail, but in terms of the the, the wastewater treatment option, well, you know, I think almost all the water used in agriculture, for example, in Israel, is treated wastewater. The, the technology is there to, to use treated wastewater. And one of the big issues, in at least in, in Basra Governorate, is the loss of agricultural land from salinization, from not using water, not having access to water for irrigation, for example. Now, I know Hussam does great, fantastic work around norms and water and I think the illusion here is would farmers use quote dirty water yeah all I would say here is there's some really interesting work on this specifically by something called the Eden Restoration Project which is cited in our policy brief and this is and this is related to the various initiatives around restoring the Mesopotamian marshes of which Azam Awash one of the sort of leading leading Iraqi environmentalists is, is involved with, but the Eden Restoration Project, which is one component of this, is using natural reed beds for, for water treatment and using natural ecological systems for water treatment and showing how this is feasible. I think they've got the go-ahead for a couple of pilot projects this year. And if you go look at the, either through our policy brief, you'll see the reference to their website, to the Eden Restoration Project. It, they say this is possible and it's interesting, the Eden Restoration Project are doing this in a way in which the, the wastewater treatment is also a way in which the, at least the sort of the, the marsh Arab villages also uh, have a kind of cultural heritage restoration. So the ecological restoration runs in parallel with the kind of cultural heritage restoration. And the idea here is that a lot is talked about, about restoring the marshes, about the water flows into the marshes. And the issue here is basically the sort of damming upstream but there is the feasibility for, shall I call them, culturally sensitive, normatively sensible, wastewater treatment kind of projects, which could scale up the sort of water access availability. But thanks. Thanks for the question. Thank you. A question for another of our colleagues here in Oxford, Adil Malik. Very good to see you, Adil. Thanks for joining us. And Adil really wants to have your view on how things have, have changed in Iraq. And particularly, he says, 
Are there noticeable difference in water management in Basra pre and post 2003? And how has the introduction of sectarian allocation system changed the governance of water? You've obviously said a little bit about that at the local yes. level. Perhaps you could say more particularly looking at what had happened uh, pre 2003. Yeah, thank you very much. 2003, you know, the Coalition Provisional Authority, remember the British were in charge of the South, had a very much a, a top-down, I would call it ideological project for the investment in public services. Many people call this a kind of neoliberal project. There were, and there still are to some extent, for example, proposals for the privatisation of the water sector in the same way there were proposals to to privatise oil contracts, which didn't succeed in the end. And what this meant, and it's interesting, if you go into the detail of this, even in terms of the British government sponsored, or the British government work on here, they had a lot of uh, advice from, from Adam Smith International uh, Think Tank, which is very much sympathetic to kind of free market solutions, as they call them, for public services. So there was an expectation with water management, and there was a breaking up of kind of, as, as part of the whole Depatification in, in 2003 is breaking up ministries, lose, losing many valuable experts, and going to kind of decentralized free market philosophy for water infrastructure rehabilitation. Unfortunately, that played straight into the kind of uh, when, when the new constitution got agreed and new sectarian system into kind of the, the political marketplace of sectarianism. Because you had you were creating a whole bunch of separate, fragmented, decentralized opportunities to earn money. And these things would be picked off one by one by particular parties, backed by particular militias. And even then, when there were large infrastructure projects with, you know, like the, the Japanese JICA, uh, a big uh, infrastructure investment project, where you'd assume for a very, very large project, there were protections against these kind of contractual malpractices. Allegedly, also with that, that was also held up. And to some extent, this is in the Human Rights Watch report, at the very least delayed because of this, the sectarian system. The sectarian system is basically, I think, whatever the, the intentions of those that design the constitution. And I talked about how the sectarian system, at least locally, is a little bit different in Basra, because it's basically, uh, you have a kind of this coalition, this dominant coalition of Shia political parties. So the eth ethno-religious complexion is, if you like, is, is more constant or fixed, is that that sectarian system, it set up the opportunity for rent-seeking, including uh, criminal rent-seeking, in a way which perhaps if a different kind of constitutional bargain or, or design had been thought about, which was much more attuned to thinking about crafting out a public interest rather than a specific sectional interest, Maybe that would have happened. I mean, there's been some interesting work, for example, about how the Iraqi sectarian system is, is replicating to some extent the sort of consociationalism, which is disabling Lebanon. Um, my, my, my colleague Toby Dodge talks about Iraq as a kind of weak, informal consociational system. And we all know about the sort of failures in both energy, water infrastructure in Lebanon. And unfortunately, these have been replicated in and actually... Uh, even worse, I would say, in Iraq, in terms of the sort of, uh, at least in terms of southern Iraq, with, with, with a very, very violent kind of militia-driven uh, rent-seeking. So, so, again, long answer, I apologise, is basically the, I think the system, the sectarian system, has amplified 
this this sort of political marketplace which has disabled opportunities for crafting out a kind of a functioning public interest driven water management infrastructure thank you question from marianne lanazza and marianne says i was earlier involved in a multidisciplinary research project about the euphrates river and analyzing the effects of lack of cooperation between turkey syria and iraq uh, where iraq was left out the situation with the war in Syria hasn't improved the situation regarding water quality and access for enough water to Iraq. And she asks, how do you look at the future regarding allocation with a more fair water share to Iraq? Yes, absolutely. That's, that's quite a big question. So I don't know how much time I've got. <laughs> but it's a really important question to, to address, actually, is that I think you have to think about these things in a whole basin a whole basin approach, and I'm, I'm, I'm in a whole basin approach, I mean this sort of Euphrates and Tigris together, yeah, in, in the, um, the Arab geographers a thousand years ago called the sort of Tigris-Euphrates basin uh, Al Jazeera, because it constitutes an island, an island in which the, the, the sort of the spring, sort of spring flows, the spring mounts from the mountains in the north in Turkey, uh, as it is now, would turned into this wonderful pulse of water, down the Euphrates and down the Tigris, which floods the kind of sort of the southern Iraqi plains and supports agriculture and so forth. So I think you need a whole basin approach. Unfortunately, there is no, there's no uh, transboundary water agreement involving Iraq, Turkey, Syria, Iran. There are actually some agreements on the Euphrates. There's a Iraq-Syria agreement from 1990, which, which agrees a, a particular percentage share between, between Iraq and Syria, and I think it's, it's 42% Syria, 58% uh, Iraq in terms of entitlement to water. Now, however, if the water flow is decreasing, that becomes a problem, yeah, if because of infrastructure in Turkey. I mean, if looking at the sort of the overall water flow, the overall water flow has declined markedly since the 1970s as upstream infrastructure has kind of become more and more developed. So there's kind of 20% less water flow uh, along the Euphrates compared to, say, the first half at least of the 20th century. Engineers talk about from the 1970s, you've lost what they call the, the near natural flow regime of both the Euphrates and the Tigris. The, the near natural regime being that a predictable seasonal pulse of water. There's more infrastructure, the more dams on the Euphrates, but increasingly more and more on the Tigris. Yalusu Dam, for example, massive Turkish dam, which, which has been making Iraqi water officials very anxious. So there's some, and I think there's a memorandum of understanding between Turkey and, and Iraq. However, these things are not fit for purpose, which is a short answer. These things are not fit for purpose because they don't handle the whole basin. And how do you do that? I think you have to go to international water law. International water law has very clear provisions about equitable and reasonable use to use the sort of the familiar norms from international water law. And I think other basins can do this, you know, with, with the political will, hopefully with assistance from the international community, you could craft a sustainable transboundary water agreement for the Tigris-Euphrates basin. And one of the reasons it's becoming more and more and more necessary is because of the impacts of climate change, because climate change is an additional external stressor, which is, added to, I mean, I would say personally that climate change is not the, the principal determinant of water problems in Basra. 
others have said, Iraqi water problems because of climate change, at least not yet, but it's a stress which is becoming more and more significant. And so you have to have a, a kind of basin-wide agreement fit for purpose, which is able, for example, to factor in variability from, from climate change uh, sort of uh, stresses. It's possible, it's possible. Other, other watersheds have done it, other countries have done it. It just needs the political will. Thank you, Michael. Unfortunately, the clock is against us and we've come to the end of our, our session, but thank you very much. And I apologize to all of those who, of you who posed questions that we weren't able to answer within the time. Could have talked about this for quite some, given Michael's expertise, my, my no. Answers, my long answers might be- uh, No, no, the, the fascinating, fascinating answers, quite, quite the opposite, Michael, thank you. It, it's always on a topic like this, we get a lot, of, a lot of questions, but thank you. Thank you very much for all of you for coming. In fact, Michael, there's actually a lot of, I've got a couple of um, questions about wanting to know where people can get hold of the report that you referred to. I know you held up, yes, that one. What's the best way of getting it online? Go to Middle East Centre website, mm -hmm. go to research. This is LSE Middle East Centre, I should probably point yeah, out. Yes, yeah, <laughs> Or we can put it on ours if need be as well. Yeah, we can share it. LSE, yes. LSE Middle East Centre website, go to research, go to Conflict Research Programme Iraq, and then you'll see the various projects in the Conflict Research Programme Iraq, and this is one of them. A whole host of other stuff as well I should, I should plug while I'm here, including some really interesting papers on protest in, in Basra, on politics in southern Basra, sorry, in Basra government. And if you want a hard copy, we have plenty of copies of this in the Middle East Centre office in London, Alice Middle East Centre office, so just contact me, we have to send you one, free of course. Thank you very much, Michael. We would, I was saying to Michael beforehand how impressive the LSE Middle East Centre website was and with a lot of uh, fascinating things on that. But I just wanted to thank Michael for an absolutely fascinating lecture. And the, sort of the, the, the detail and the knowledge that you've been, been given here has given us, again, as with many of these talks, rather sobering, but it gives us a, a better sense of the sort of things that are going wrong and why they're going wrong, and also the solutions. But as, as Michael said, these are, this is not a, a, an anarchic situation. There are very, very clear reasons and, uh, for why these things are happening. But thank you very much, Michael. And for you- for the audience as well, and for your questions, and please get in contact with me if, if you haven't been able to get through in this opportunity in terms of questions. Thank you, Michael. Thank you to the audience. Thank you for all of you for attending. And I look forward to welcoming you next week for those of you who are able to attend, where we'll have Netta Cohen talking about environmental issues in the Israel-Palestine dispute. But thank you very much for this evening. Have a wonderful weekend. And thank you very much again, Michael. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>